Hello, once again, welcome back to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. And I'm Jackson, uh, also co-host of this thing. <laughs> Why are you like this? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think I was looking at my notes. I read just enough of them to like clue into that while you were talking, because apparently I have the span of a goldfish. I, two seconds before we started recording, guys, are you ready to go? And you gave me a thumbs up and a little snappy gesture. <laughs> yeah, and then I was like, well, we're starting now, we gotta... Look over my notes, and then I forgot what we were doing. It's fine. It's fine. So I was going to do a lot of research about, like, Admiral Nelson and the Napoleonic Wars and history of Jaws' impact on the shark population. Didn't do a lot of that this week. (laughs) That was my plan. Then a lot of people had to move to that time of the year. Yeah. Downsides of living in a college town. Mm -hmm. Downsides of having friends. Don't do that, everybody. Why am I I like this? (laughs) Like, I feel like I need to, like, a PSA. Do not follow Jackson's advice. Really, as I told my intern, listen to what I say and then do the exact opposite of that. Anyway, thank you for joining us for episode 11 of Our Bracket on a Boat. Today we'll be talking about Jaws from 1975, as well as Master and Commander from 2003. One of them is a classic of cinema that everyone has heard of, even if you haven't seen that honestly define much of the way we do films, and the other one is Master Commander. That could have been a setup for a joke, but it, I, it's not. It's, just, it's not worth it. It's, it's Master Commander. I think a Master Commander could have been that. I mean, we talked about it last time, that it really got overshadowed by the first Pirates film. Sure, it has the spectacle going for it, but it's a war movie, and those only do well with a certain audience most of the time. Broadly speaking, there are exceptions to all these rules. War movies are often thought of as, like, guy movies. There's less of an audience for women and for uh, for kids. I think you can do it to make it more appealing to women in general. You have the men look really pretty. You, you bring in some female characters to kind of offset that. Master Commander does not do any of that. Mm-hmm. One of the, the successes of Pirates of the Caribbean is it has a few female characters to bring in, like, a female audience and also the gays. Because we are all here for Karen Knightley. But... Uh, Master Commander doesn't have a Kieran that doesn't really even have... I guess it has Paul Bettany being pretty, but even then, we don't have, like, the beefcake. I mean, there is Russell Crowe. Lots of women think Russell Crowe is attractive, especially lots of women circa 2003. Lots of women voted for Trump, too. They're, they're not <laughs> right about everything. That escalated really fast. It's fine. Yeah, I don't get the Russell Crowe thing, but tweets their own. I have no opinion. Yeah. I have anti-opinion. <laughs> the aggregate view of this podcast is that Russell Crowe is... Eh. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Vote uh, on our Twitter at Crudus Pausing uh, if you think Russell Crowe is hot or not. Sure. <laughs> we could use the traffic. Mm. Like, they do have Russell Crowe, but there's not a scene that specifically is there to draw your eye to his attractiveness. Mm-hmm. Like, there, there's no scene where he has to, like, take his shirt off and dive into the water. Right. There's not a lot of scenes of the menfolk being soft and clearly having, like, an inner monologue or whatever. Which is essentially what appeals to women, I guess. I'm going off a lot of like stereotypes and like the, the idea of Hollywood as opposed to, you know, what people have actually said, but you get the idea. There's a certain amount of we have to put ourselves inside the minds of producers and executives. Mm-hmm. And, and we all know that they are woefully unaware of what audiences actually want. Right. And so I don't just kind of like women who are like super into like war and Napoleon and boats and stuff. That's all totally fine. But that seems like a fairly niche market. We've also talked about like this is a Napoleonic war, which Americans just in general don't have a lot of 
cultural knowledge about, and so there's it's not going to have the same amount of draw as, say, a World War II movie or a Revolutionary War movie. And I assume the marketing didn't, like, dig into the Galapagos part, so all those Jane Goodall stands could be super here for it. Yeah, or all those, like, you know, Darwinians. <laughs> the silent majority of the Darwinians. <laughs> yeah, like, I think that's part of the trouble. Master Commander doesn't really have a lot of stuff to cling on to beyond it's a war movie on boat. Like, in the way that, like, parts of the Caribbean has something for everybody. It's, it's got ghost stuff for Supernatural fans. It's got, like, love and drama for people who are into, like, the period piece romance things. Mm-hmm. It's got comedy, japes, tumblers. Uh, the bits that I find interesting are, like, really few and far between. Like, I'm really into the historical medical stuff. Mm-hmm. We have Dr. Maturin. Someone's skull is swelling. And so he has to take out a piece of their skull and put a metal plate in his head. Which is really cool because it's the early 1800s. That is, again, really fun. I feel like you could have, like, almost gory thing happening. Like, like um, Call the Midwife has some of that kind of stuff going on. You have that kind of stuff for folks who like the gore, but isn't necessarily horror thing that you could, you could dig into, but, again, not much of it. There, there's also the really awesome self-surgery scene. Yeah, I love a good self-surgery. No. I do this with my own hand. Those two things almost bookend the film, and there's not a whole lot... In between, I guess there's also the amputation of the kid's arm. Yeah, but that's a relatively short scene, and they don't. It's not all that interesting. It's just an amputation. <laughs> like what a what a very film scholar thing to say. <laughs> but also, like I remember that scene being not very impressive because we don't see much of it. Like I, I'm not saying that like you know, like man, I really want to see more kids getting their limbs cut off or anything. But they kind of have a a discretion approach to it because you know it's a child. And so we don't, like, have the intensity of that scene. I will say, like, a lot of this is coming from my love of hospital procedurals and, like, growing up watching MASH. Mm -hmm. So that's where a lot of this is from. And in comparison to stuff like that, an amputation is not all that interesting. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. And also, like, the stakes of the amputation were not super high. They were, like, doing an amputation during a storm or we have to do this just right or or he'll lose his whole upper body or whatever. Or, Or, like, they have to, like cut off the arm because there's an alien parasite in it or something. Right. Or, like, like he's a crack shot and they're trying to find somebody to, like, amputate his arm but still be able to, like, let him fire a gun with it. I don't know. I'm not sure how that would work, but... Imagine if that was the plot of this movie. Like, that would be really cool. They didn't replace his arm with, like, a, a lobster arm or something. Mm-hmm. All of the, like, cool medical bits or... Some people might be super into, like, the mechanics and repairing of the ship and stuff like that. They don't spend lots of time actually diving into that stuff and making it interesting to the audience it's you have to already be interested in that for the film to draw you in mm-hmm. it's sort of like how a lot of people weren't necessarily into baking but the great british bake-off does such a good job of making the parts of baking so fun and interesting that mm-hmm. it drooped into that world and now people bake i made a pizza yesterday that was way thicker than planned and part of that is because they have expert commentators who talk about the, the process and what goes into it and how challenging certain things can be to reproduce. We don't really have anyone here talking about how difficult the things that they are doing are. I think that could have been really compelling is maybe there's repair board that's flooding. They're getting it on, but they realize they're out of nails. And so people are having to hold the ship closed and then while someone's rushing up to find some more nails and it's this tension of, will they get to the nails and get them back in time before the board goes away and the ship starts to flood again? Little things to make it really crunchy with that kind of stuff. Yeah, the one thing this film attempts to do that with is all of the battles and chasing the Asheron. And there's just so much of it, it gets boring after a while. 
By the 15-minute mark of the film, we've had three engagements with the Acheron, and honestly, not a whole lot to break it up. <laughs> mm-hmm. We really needed like a good 10 or 20 minutes at the start of the film before we get to the plot, and I'm rarely someone who says we need to waste time before we get to the plot, but honestly, we needed to do something else. Mm-hmm. Or we need to see the surprise in, a, in combat with some other boat so that we have, oh, this is what it's like when they win, this is how they succeed, and now here's this challenge that's going to make it harder for them. A lot of sequels of superhero movies start with the character at the end of solving some minor problem, like Thor finishing liberating uh, Vanaheim or Cap uh, taking down Kickbox Guy. Yeah, Avengers 2 literally starts with them storming a Hydra base. Yeah, exactly. The stinger, I believe. We need a stinger from the surprise, which also adds more variety or whatever. I think another part of it is a lot of these battles are taking place on open ocean. There's not a lot of, oh, you have to like, avoid the reefs. You have to you know be very careful because there's like islands navigating around. Like even, even Battleship, of all things, made decent use of the like atolls of Hawaii to create dynamic battles. It used its space well, mm-hmm. whereas all of these naval battles are just kind of a blank slate. Even the final one where they're just off the coast of the Galapagos, it's not really a battle because they just surprise board them mm-hmm. and the, the ships aren't moving at all. That's one way that we, we have to compare it to the Pirate series again. I'm sorry. We're not trying to do this. It's just that the Pirate series is probably the best version that we all and that we, you all know of this kind of ship combat. There's that, but it's also the series started the exact same year that this came out. Mm-hmm. There are so many similarities. They even take place during relatively similar time periods. Yeah. Within a hundred years or so. But the Pirates film, even when they're on the open ocean, they do enough to make the battles interesting, where they drop anchor to drift a boat. Yeah, exactly. Or there's the scene from the first film where, because they're all undead pirates, that they can just walk across the seafloor. Yeah, exactly. And, like, Master and Commander does try and do this. Like, they have the whole decoy aft that they trick the Acheron into following for a while. But there's not a whole lot of that happening during their engagements. And I get that this film is attempting to be historically accurate, so there's not as much room for that. But you gotta give us something. Okay, so that's true, but also there were wooden submarines during the American Revolutionary War. Not great ones. They were basically like paddle boats made out of a barrel, but that kind of thing was around. People had stuff like that. So there was the opportunity to do weird stuff that would still be in this universe and be fine. Mm -hmm. At least I believe that was a real thing. I got that from Liberty's kids, so don't come to me for historical knowledge. (laughs) Can we talk about how ridiculous the series of events that lead to Dr. Mature and getting shot in the chest are. Doctor? My god, Doctor! Doctor! Yes. Go ahead. This is doofy. So, we're at a lull in the narrative. They're on the sea again. They're going after the Acheron. And this is after Mature and gets told, no, we're not going to the Galapagos. We don't have time. And there's an albatross that's like flying around the ship and someone is trying to shoot it down. Because there's no other rhyme than the mariner. They're bored on a ship. So what, what you going to do? And, you know, he, he's tracking the thing and then he lets Alusha shot as it's like swooping underneath the sails near the mast and he clips Maturin in the chest. It's so dumb. It's so very clearly set up to create this unnecessary conflict that comes from nothing. Mm-hmm. It's not like... 
they're running low on food and this albatross is a source of food or something. It's just, I feel like shooting this albatross. Also, Ryan the Agent Mariner comes out 20 years later. He couldn't have read it. Fair enough. Was this a reference to that guy? Are we trying to do a co-universal thing between Master and Commander and the Ryan the Agent Mariner? Honestly, that would have made it more fun. Yeah, it's very ridiculous and unnecessary. We could have had other things happen. Maybe there's like two characters who we've been building tension between and like they decided to have a duel right now or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, misses. Yeah, like tensions are building on the ship before that midshipman commits suicide. Instead of having a suicide, this could have been like, we need to stop and someone got seriously hurt and it's our doctor. <laughs> yeah, like maybe instead of um, committing suicide, someone decided to finally confront him for being the Jonah and like they're coming after him with a gun and he like dodges it just the right time and maturing takes the bullet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Could even have Matura like try and step in the way and that's how he takes the bullet. Also good. Yeah. Yeah. The same effect by just mildly shifting a few scenes. Because I understand not wanting him to get injured during a battle because that makes things a little bit more complicated. Like, okay, he got shot during battle. How do you outrun the Acheron and then get to the Galapagos to, for him to do the surgery and whatnot? That I understand. I think this was a very poor implementation of how to get to the performing surgery on yourself bit. That's actually cool. Right. I wonder if it was like a thing from the book that made a lot more sense, but we don't have like the... We don't have the 50 pages of backstory leading up to it. Exactly. Is it kind of writing choice that should have been caught by an editor? And I don't know why it wasn't. Yeah. I know that sometimes just bad movies happen. You, Bright, and or Suicide Squad. But this movie seems at least relatively competent. It seems like this was not the product of auteur directing. This seemed like a collaboration. And I don't understand how numerous people missed this and didn't fix it. Mm-hmm. It could be a situation where, yeah, this isn't as good as it could be, but we don't really have time to fix it. It could have just been a low priority because of what they were trying to accomplish with the film. Like, this definitely feels like a historical warfare type film, and that little detail is relatively unimportant in the grand scheme of that. Right. I think the rush over time thing makes the most sense. There are seemingly a lot of parts in this, so I don't know if maybe like. There's a bunch of people who had different things they wanted to bring in, and that's why. Mm-hmm. Apparently, it's adapted from 13 different books in the series, so there's that. Wait, this film was adapted from 13 different books? I thought there were just 13 books in the series. Like, I knew it was adapted from multiple books, I just didn't think it was that many. This film combines elements from 13 different novels of Patrick O'Brien. The plot mostly comes from the far side of the world. It takes place during 1805, during the Napoleonic Wars, instead of 1813, during the Anglo-American War of 1812, as the producer wished to avoid offending American audiences. I can understand that. We can't have America be the bad guys and then market this film to Americans. I would have been much more interested in the film had that been the case, though. <laughs> right? But also, like, again, The War of 1812, I don't care about that one either, honestly. Changing it from that, like, it, that would have made it a lot more interesting, but also I, I get why they made that choice, because they are cowards. I mean, this is also 2003, so the war, Oh, yeah, no. Like, movie would have been dead in the water had they done that at that time. Not saying I don't want to see it, but there was no way in hell any was, was signing off on, nope, America's the bad guys in this. Although, to be fair, the Captain of the Akron gets away at the end, so I could see them doing a thing where, ah, the Americans are the worthy opponents. Like, a sort of friendly rivalry thing. But it has to do things to make the Akron even less of, like, a threat or a moral danger, which it already is kind of underwhelming in that respect. So. Mm-hmm. Like, oh no, the Hunt Whalers. Still voting for the Akron. <laughs> Man, that little tidbit, like, what could have been? Honestly, I can imagine that doing kind of well now. Like, we are 
in a different place yep. culturally with how I feel about America. And especially American military history. Yep. Hopefully you're listening to this so far in the future that you're not entirely sure what we mean. <laughs> and playing up with that villain as being American, but all the parts of America that we don't like, as opposed to you know Russell Crowe being uh, the parts of America that we're supposed to like, mm-hmm. as it were. Can see that working. Uh, I mean, that is functionally how uh, America, the Winter Soldier, works. Yep. It is possible to do. It is not easy, but it is possible. Yeah. I mean, Winter Soldier also leads on to some uh, Cold War era tropes, which helps. Yeah. I don't think I mentioned last time that I like how the um, the Akron has darker sails. Kind of like the wet hat, black hat thing from a Western. Yeah. That is a nice little touch. We kind of have a little bit of Aubrey as an Ahab analog as the things are going wrong in the ship, and he just has total tunnel of vision over the Acheron. Mm-hmm. Basic repairs. We can get home as we are. We're not going home. We can refit at sea. As you said, Mr. Allen, she is taking the water to the South Seas, and we are supposed to stop her. <laughs> With respect. She's a vastly heavier ship. She's out of our class. She could be halfway to Cape Horn by the time we repaired and underway. Well then, there's not a moment to lose. We have a lot of Ahab analogs in this bracket. It's just a thing that happens in boat movies. We really should have had a second bit where we rank the protagonist on a scale from one to Ahab. <laughs> uh, Speaking of very Ahabish characters, you want to talk about ja- about Jaws? Yeah, let's go ahead and move over there. One thing that we should mention that we failed to touch on last time is, um, unfortunately, one of the actors from this film has passed away recently due to complications from the coronavirus. Yep. Lee Fierro, who plays Mrs. Kinter, she's the mother of the kid who gets eaten by the shark, slaps Brody in the face. You knew there was a shark out there. (laughs) You knew it was dangerous. But you let people go swimming anyway. She, Lee Fierro, passed away on April 5th. And it is a cruel irony that it is due to coronavirus. Which a lot of people have turned to Jaws as a way to process because of how the film interacts with crisis response from elected officials. Yes. She lived to a rep age of 91. That's a, a perfectly respectable time to go, but still is a loss. And I hope, and you know, rest in peace and all that jazz. Mm-hmm. On that dour note, let's move on to talking about the actual content of the film. Mm-hmm. Actually, before we get to the actual content of the film, there's a podcast called The Film Reroll where they play through movies as if they were D&D campaigns, and they're playing through Jaws, and the guy playing Chief Brody tried to arrest Mrs. Kittner for, for assaulting an officer. <laughs> Your face. When did that episode air? Oh, um, a few years ago. Okay. Yeah, no, yeah. Good. Otherwise, it would have been like, read the room. Like, still not great, but... Without the weight of the moment we're having, it's a lot more forgivable. Yeah, and everyone else in the room was like, no, dude, she's a grieving mother, what are you doing? Why aren't you a person? So, like, I think that we were spared a much worse version of the police state working in harmony with the failure of elected officials, which is one of the more unrealistic parts of this movie. I honestly really enjoy Brody as a character. I think he's really interesting. Mm -hmm. It's surprising how introspective he is. So I noticed there's kind of a archetypal difference between like the cop and the sheriff. Brody is more of the like the sheriff archetype where he's kind of the lone competent man who is here to do the law in this small town. As opposed to like the beat cop concept. Yes. You also have like the, the detective archetype. Yeah. To kind of round out the triad. Yeah. Order of the triad. Assemble! 
Yeah, which I think why he's more compelling because he's it feels more more like a, the Western trope of like the cowboy, which you know there's a lot to unpack about the way we perceive uh, law enforcement officials and stuff, and how still not necessarily better in real life, but more palatable in film. I do also think that part of it is this is exactly the sort of thing that a police chief should be doing in a world where the police aren't shit. Like, okay, someone has been attacked by a shark. We need to close the beaches for public safety. We need to figure out exactly what's going on with the shark population and how much of a danger this is before we just let people out into the water again. Mm-hmm. Right. Like this is, these are all good responses. And when he's browbeaten by the mayor at all, he feels bad about it and tries to rectify his mistake, which is also important. And the fact that it's him who is getting the consequences from Miss Kittner and not the mayor is also really interesting. It shows that everyone realizes, no, this was your job. And you not only failed to put any protections for in place, but you also failed to act as a check against people like the mayor. Mm-hmm. I, I mentioned it last time, but like people are at the beginning of the film are coming to Brody with all these small town grievances. Mm-hmm. Now we got a bunch of calls about that karate school. It seems that the nine-year-olds from the school have been karateing the picket fences. There's a damn truck with a hamster place on it smack in front of my store. And he is just completely uninterested in forcing that sort of thing. It's like, no, this is not my job. I don't want to deal with it can deal with your personal problems on your own it's not my job i shouldn't have to do it although on the flip side i think that once we abolish the police and replace them with something better having someone to deal with like small personal grievances like that is going to be important having someone to kind of be an arbiter but having that person often be separate from the law in a lot of cases is going to help to allow that to to go smooth without resorting to punishments oh yeah like i definitely think that there's a role for community mediators and things like that but it definitely shouldn't be someone who's armed with a gun. No. Or can arrest people and shove them into the criminal justice system. Exactly. Which is why a lot of problems often aren't solved because people know this isn't an arrestable offense and they don't want to go to that level. Yeah. There's nothing in between do nothing and potentially murder this person. Right. Sidebar. Wellness checks. <laughs> anyway, um, let's talk about the nails on the chalkboard and how good that scene is. Quinn's introduction is just so good. We talked in our episode on Hunt for Red October about Ramius's big theatrical speeches, and Quint is doing some of the same stuff here. Mm-hmm. Who is a more commanding presence, do you think, Ramius or Quint? I think if we're talking about commanding presence, I'm going to definitely give it to Ramius. Quint, he is an expert when it comes to his thing, but he's not necessarily able to gather people around him in a charismatic way Mm. like people are only dealing with quint because quint has the skills necessary for this moment whereas people go to ramius because he is a leader ramius has the persuade skill quint has the intimidate skill pretty much Mm -hmm. that's fair quint is still this very like vibrant character in a way that stands out from the rest of the world and it makes him so fun to watch i think this would not work without someone like him being this like very over-the-top character Mm mm-hmm on a more critiquing note, we talked about how Master Commander has no women in it. Jaws doesn't have a lot of women either. Like, there's 
Chief Brody's wife, there's uh, Mrs. Kittner, all the jazz, but like we don't have like a lot of women who like grow and change in the narrative mm-hmm. the way that like the three men folk do. Yeah. Although I do actually like Brody's wife here and how it shows how distant he is from his everyday life because of the job weighing on him. Mm-hmm. Like there's a line when Matt Hooper comes to talk to him, like he brings him a bottle of wine and the door was open. Mind if I come in? Uh, Matt Hooper. Oh, hi, Ellen Brody. Your husband's home. Yes, I'd really uh, like to talk to him. Uh, Yes, so would I. Uh... Yeah, that's a great line. That tells you so much about their relationship so, like, early in our encountering of her. Yeah. Like, he's just kind of always has this thousand-yard stare. He's really distant at that dinner before Hooper comes in and brings the wine to ply him. There's that whole scene where he's just wondering, okay, when is the shark attack going to happen? Mm-hmm. And we, we get that amazing zoom in on him. It's fantastic. During, I think it's the chumming scene, he hears a noise and then he comes up and we get this shot from just slightly underneath and he's like looking around because he's just, he is so on edge. Mm-hmm. As soon as the shark attack happens and he is strong-armed into not doing anything about it. You get the impression that something happens uh, when he was uh, like a New York beat cop. He has some sort of uh, PTSD of some kind or something. Maybe not like a particular injury to him, but like there was some crisis that he didn't process well. There's this hypervigilance that he has developed from likely some sort of traumatic experience. Mm -hmm. Which makes sense to me now that I'm thinking about it, but I'm also... There's no line of dialogue that tells us that, but I think you can kind of gather it from what we're seeing here. And I think that's actually really good characterization. Mm-hmm. But I don't need that line of dialogue to get it. Yeah. There's nothing in the film that really gets at Brody's internality, like what's going on in his head, but the filmmaking and how other characters talk about him does. Mm-hmm. It's really good storytelling. Yeah. Or literally has a scene where he talks about his history and past and why he is the way he is, yeah. which is like the exact opposite of Brody. Mm-hmm. But it makes sense because he gets introduced halfway through the film and he's a major character. We just kind of need to get through all that to get people up to speed. Right. Also, because of the type of person, he's much more gregarious. He's much more jovial. He comes from wealth, so he's used to talking about himself. Right. He feels like a coherent, vibrant character in the way that Brody does because of his background and makes it that he is the way that he is. Yeah. The fact that there's a little bit of like haughtiness to him because yeah. he was called in because he's the expert, mm-hmm. which is one of the reasons why him and Quinn clash is because Quint doesn't defer to his expertise. Mm-hmm. They're both experts, but very different experts. Yes. Yeah. One thing I do want to unpack that is a problem with this film is because it has such a big impact. It had a like severe impact on the, on shark populations, especially great white shark populations. It led to many laws being passed to protect great white sharks from overhunting people. People saw Jaws, assume that's how all great whites are, and were like, hey, we should all do that. We should all be quint. It's like if people went after vampire bats after watching Dracula. Exactly. Or what happened to wolf populations in Europe after like werewolf myths became very popular. The writer of Jaws has gone on to say, hey, if I'd known that was going to happen, I wouldn't have written the book. Mm-hmm. So I respect that. Like, that's, you know, fair enough. Like, he didn't write this as an anti-shark screed. He was just writing, like, a fun 
uh, monster narrative. Yeah, and like this is a movie monster, and movie animals turn into movie monsters happen all the time. There's a little horror film about giant rabbits. We're also getting a movie coming out soon with Megan Fox hunting a lion. Sorry, with a lion hunting Megan Fox who's stuck in the desert. Ooh, interesting. Yeah, uh, it's like a combat op that goes wrong, and now there's a lion. I don't want to fault this film too much. I just think that this film is, was so huge and it had such a negative impact on Shark PR. And I don't think anyone was prepared for how big this film was going to be. Again, it's a crisis response. The inability to acknowledge the problem and take necessary steps to prevent greater harm from being done. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of ironic that the film kind of created its own real-life example of itself happening. Yeah. Like, up until recently, like, people love to play up, like, sharks as, you know, these mindless murder machines Mm -hmm. still, which is unfortunate. I do think some things like Shark Week on the Discovery Channel, I'm not sure if that's still going, I think it is maybe, has helped with that. But there's also definitely parts of Shark Week that have also impeded people feeling bad for declining shark populations. Yeah. Yeah, like, the ramifications of Jaws are from people's ignorance. Like, people fear what they do not understand. Right. This is less of a critique of the film itself and more placing it within culture and history. Mm -hmm. But I think that is important, at least for round two, to kind of dig into the effect the film has on the world at large. Yeah, and I think Jaws is one of the films in the bracket that has had a significant influence, not just in the film industry, but outside of it as well. Mm Mm-hmm. I know we've talked quite a bit about the cinematography draws, but I want to talk about it more because it's so very good. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Wait, Steven Spielberg's good with a camera? What? <laughs> Say hey, so. I think one of my favorite scenes in the film is Chief Brody is just getting to the station after finding the body, and he's typing up the police report, and then it just zooms in on the typewriter as he slowly spells out shark attack. Mm-hmm. And it is so good and you can feel tension in every single letter as he presses it yeah a few weeks ago i talked about films doing a bad job of portraying textual information to the audience Mm -hmm. this is a great example of how to do it (laughs) and great part of that is like the the typewriter like click clack click clack click clack click clack like it mirrors the music in a very subtle way that isn't Doofy. Mm-hmm. There's a, this like coherency to this building danger the film really gets mm-hmm. all the way throughout with the music, with the typewriter scene, which is like the general anxiety that Brody has. Mm-hmm. And it's weird that we're not getting things like textual information being uh, related to the audience right now that Jaws got it. You know, it's done. We figured it out. Mm-hmm. For a number of years, TV and filmmakers didn't have a good way to convey this character got a text message. What does it say? Mm-hmm. I really wish I knew the film that started it, but all of a sudden, like, why don't we just have the text message pop up on screen? Kyle Calgren uh, did a good video on that. We can link in the description. Mm-hmm. I know it best from, from BBC Sherlock. Mm-hmm. For all of its flaws, a very good uh, example of how to do that. Yeah, and like now it's pretty much ubiquitous because it works. Mm-hmm. We had to create a new film language for the evolving times, and we did. Which is a cool thing about film, is that it's, is a film has a language that we have to use, mm-hmm. or not use. One last thing I want to talk about. Uh, we, we've touched on the the score for Jaws before, and it's fantastic, it's iconic. You hum a few bars and people know exactly what's going on. One significant thing I noticed in the film is 
while they're on the boat and kind of the intermittent shark attacks and the triumphs and the failures as that's all going on, the score cycles from tension building up and then some sort of failure happening and then them overcoming that failure into this like triumphantness. And it just kind of keeps cycling back and forth and it's all so very seamless. Like there's not a, okay, this track is over and we've moved on to the triumphant track. It's just everything flows so naturally, and it is fantastic. It makes all of that feel very cohesive. Especially, mm-hmm. it feels like uh, the ebb and flow of the tides helps keep it all in the same like watery space. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure we've talked about it on the podcast before, but horror films are all about building up tension and release, and this film is so good at it. It's so wild, though, that this film is so ubiquitous and it's still, like, it's still a horror film, and horror films are kind of their own niche thing. Mm-hmm. I think part of that is because it, whilst it uses so many horror tropes, it doesn't have the horror trapping, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It's pulling from a lot of different places. I mean, it definitely has a lot of influence from monster movies of the 40s and 50s. Right. Those schlocky B-horror things. But it has, in certain ways, created its own cinematic language for that tension build and release cycle. And this film is incredibly early. I wouldn't be surprised if a number of horror films adapted their techniques from Jaws. That's true. That's true. I am no expert on the history of horror as a film genre. So grain of salt. Yeah. And it's kind of hard to track like when a thing entered culture, like what exactly came first. Yeah. There's also the fact that horror is a indie production driven scene. Mm -hmm. And so things can happen in a film that very few people have heard of and seen and just kind of propagate forward because people who are into horror are really into horror. That's true. Might not be recognized as coming from, you know, that obscure thing no one's heard of if someone does the same thing in an action movie that makes gangbusters. Exactly. Yeah. And this is a lot of ways also an action movie. Like, it ends with an explosion. I think that often things ending with explosions makes them less horror to me. It does, but that falls in line with Stuff like Creature from the Black Lagoon. Mm, that's true. Yeah, again, like older forms of horror. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, This was Spielberg's homage to those sorts of films that he grew up watching. Mm-hmm. Like we, We've talked about New Hollywood a lot before, but this is really, like, this is the era where we're getting filmmakers who grew up their entire lives watching film. Mm-hmm. And so like, there's a huge evolution of what sort of things are being done. I, I shouldn't say first generation of people who grew up watching film, but... People who grew up watching film and then were able to study film academically. Yeah. And speaking of studying film academically, one of the ways you do that is by comparing key elements that run through a genre. So let's compare what ship in this movie about boats is more intact by the end of the movie. I think we gotta give it to the surprise. Mm-hmm. I mean, while the surprise takes some damage and is rebuilt sometimes, that's kind of the point of the Ship of Theseus Award. Yeah, and like the Orca is completely trash it, it sinks they have to swim back to shore it is eaten the order is eaten it is very thoroughly trashed mm-hmm. yeah so I, I don't think that there's any argument that the ship of theseus award should go to master and commander for the surprise yeah but surprising no one i think the overall award is going to go to jaws yeah jaws has to move forward it's a classic i love it so much it's such a great summer movie like when we first turned it on i was so excited to watch it because it had been a while and it was like i think right around the fourth of july yeah i think it's a very good mood setter for if you're thinking about going to the beach at some point uh, Mm -hmm. in the year just have that in the back of your mind just 
lurking there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Jaws will be moving forward, and Master and Commander will... Retire to the Galapagos. Yeah. And then what's up next week? Next week, we have Life of Pi versus Pipes of the Caribbean 2, Dead Man's Chest. Man, that's going to be a tough one, but I feel like I have things I want to unpack with both of them. Yeah, like I think this is as big of a genre shift as what we had for like Poseidon Adventure and Hotel Transylvania. Mm-hmm. But in a very different way. And I think both both of these films are much more competent. Yes. And much more visually compelling. Yes. So it should be a very interesting one to finish off round two of our bracket. Mm-hmm. If you want to make sure to catch that, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and wherever you get your pods. Once again, this has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.